So I apologize. We're going to have a problem this morning. I updated my operating system, and ever since then I get this message, which I can't get it to go off. If anybody here is smarter than I am and knows how to do it, please let me know. Well, uh, oh, let's see if it'll work here. Let's try this. See, it won't let my cursor take it out. It goes behind it. No, it won't let me say okay. Let's see. If um, I hate to waste too much time. We won't get through this. Um, well, like I said, if we have someone in here who. 40 years younger than I am and knows how to do this. I guess I can't. Let's, I'll try rebooting it. And All right. Uh, we're going to do this for a minute. So two of the grandchildren, who happened to be visiting two weeks ago, so I put them up. So um, this is the last of our lessons, and today's lesson we're going to go back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer for uh, a while uh, because we began with him and we're ending with him. We began with an analysis of our society and the difficulties of making disciples in our society, and we're going to end on the same note with hopefully a little bit more understanding and information than we had when we started out. I am um, going to read to you from Matthew chapter 16, beginning with chapter 24, as kind of a way of introducing this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And what good would it be for a person if he gains the whole world in exchange for his soul? Let's pray. Lord God, uh, please be with us in this time we have together. Uh, hopefully the words of my mouth will be satisfactory to you and that we will come to understand a bit more clearly uh, the message you have for how we might witness to our faith in this culture that we are part of. Uh, give us grace, give us wisdom, and give us your abounding love. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Don't think it worked. Um, so, I just wanted to start by um, reminding us of where we ended last week, because I think where we ended last week helps us to remember what's really essential about the whole series of our discipleship. I call this a quadrant. Uh, the arrows are pointed out. It's one thing, but you could also connect them. But 
essentially, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so that gives us an, a, a, a plan for what discipleship means. It means learning to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. It means learning to love ourselves. And I might have said last week, I know I said in a class this week, um, many people cannot be the disciples God wants them to be because they have emotional blockages from their childhood or the traumas when they were younger that they've never overcome, and it interferes with them receiving the grace of Christ and dispensing the grace of Christ. We all have brokenness, so we're not any of us immune from this, and there are uh, ways in which we can overcome uh, our brokenness and learn to really love ourselves. And you know, to really love yourself, you have to love your faults just like you love your virtues. Most of us sort of submerge our faults uh, and uh, don't love them, and therefore we can't own them. Uh, and we deny them. If we own them and love them, then we can overcome them. That's a little hard to get, but it's true. Uh, learn to love the community we're a part of, the church, the small group, the discipling community we're a part of, and then the final step is to reach out in love for the entire world, and that can come in different ways. I'm, I might tell you a funny story at the end of this. Uh, just a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, because I think uh, it's really important to remember how short it was. He died at 39 years old, okay? Uh, he was in his 20s before he graduated from graduate school and really began his active ministry. So what we remember about his life is really a period from 1933 to 1945, that's 12 years. And for a lot of that period of time, he was an almost unknown young professor of theology. So in 1933, when Hitler came to power, on almost the first day that Hitler came to power, Bonhoeffer spoke against him. And he was cut off the radio by the Nazi party. Um, so that his name was on a list of people we don't like right from the very beginning. Okay, And like most dictatorships, you don't get rid of the people that you don't like, but they're not much trouble. You get rid of the people that you don't like and are a lot of trouble. He becomes a lot of trouble. Um, in 1935, uh, he was in um, Britain as a, as a pastor of a local German emigre church because people were leaving Germany by that time. And um, he, at that point in time, uh, was called to go to Finkenwald in Germany and form the seminary for which he is famous. He wrote a little book called Life Together at, during, at, while he was at that seminary. The Confessing Church Seminary and Finkenwald is used by me and others as sort of a broad catch-all because actually the, Germ the Nazis closed Finkenwald and it kept going under various guises. It was sort of the Confessing Church sort of hid what they were doing from the Nazis and kept going for a while after the Nazis closed Finkenwald. But it, it, in 1937, uh, it was closed for the final time and a big change occurred for, uh, for him. He ended up going first back to Britain and then back to the United States. He only stayed in the States a few weeks um, and came back uh, to join the resistance. Um, his brother-in-law, Hans Donyi, was a member of the Abwehr, which was the German naval intelligence. And um, 
the abwar was the center of the resistance to Hitler and was the center of trying to assassinate Hitler. His brother-in-law was the chief lawyer for the group, which meant he kept all the records. Uh, and unfortunately, a mistake he made in keeping those records cost Donye and Bonhoeffer their lives. Um, he, in, he, we, people overplay his part in the plot for Hitler. He was not involved in the part of the plot that was killing Hitler. He was able to travel because he had been part of the World Council of Churches. And so he was sent overseas mostly to conferences. At those conferences, he would talk to other clergy who were close to power, and particularly the Bishop of Chinchester, uh, and give messages to the Allies because those who were involved in trying to get rid of Hitler wanted the Allies to agree that they wouldn't be killed if they managed to get rid of Hitler and that the Allies would allow them to reconstruct Germany, something the Allies were unwilling to do. And, and so um, he was unsuccessful in uh, getting the, Germ the, the, the British, especially, and U.S. government to change their policy of total victory. Uh, in 1943, in April, he was arrested. And, and those of you who know the, the story of the war, uh, in 1944, in July, after the Allies invaded, there was an attempt on Hitler's life. And at that point, um, the stormtroopers gained control and the Abwehr lost control and lost power in Germany. They began to investigate um, he, uh, Bonhoeffer, and all the other people who were involved in the resistance to Hitler. Um, in that, and this is what's important for today's lesson, in that period in prison, he wrote a series of letters to his family and to his best friend and a few other people, which have been published as letters and papers in prison. And in that, he talks about a new age that we are entering. Uh, and he talks about a world without God. He talks about how to have a secular faith. And that's kind of where we're going to um, uh, uh, be talking about today. In, on April 9th, 1945, at Flossenburg Prison, he was executed. And um, it's very sad. They could hear the Allied guns. Uh, the, the Allies were just a few days away, just a few hours away if they'd pushed. And... Um, um, on the direct orders of, of Hitler. If you remember, which is why you should be careful of what you say, uh, in Cost of Discipleship, he says if when a man, when God bids a man come and be a disciple, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer in his life fulfilled that. So in his letters and papers from prison, he senses that the world is changing. And he knows for a fact that Germany is changing. He knows for a fact that German society has become completely secular and had been that way for some time. Okay, so he doesn't think this is a brand new phenomenon. But Hitler brought on, he thinks Hitler's just the end of it all. Okay, uh, he calls it humanity come of age or a society that doesn't think it needs God. Okay, so the phrase humanity come of age is sort of like uh, when you were, our son, when he was 14 years old at the dinner table one night, thanked us for raising him, but let us know that we no longer needed to have any responsibility for him. He was now an adult. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I think the whole human race is in that process with God. We're saying to God, well, we sort of know what we're doing here. We really don't need you. Thank you for raising us, and uh, we'll be back in touch if we ever need any more information. 
And that's sort of what Bonhoeffer has in mind with this humanity come of age, a, a world that doesn't think it needs God. Now, if you don't think this applies to our society, note that there's been a lot of objection to the new Speaker of the House because he is a Christian, and that's somehow dangerous. Um, our society, there are many people in academia that think Christians should not be allowed to serve in the government. They should not have high public office. They shouldn't be allowed to run for office because it's dangerous because they don't buy the secular story that we're in charge of our own destiny. They think of us as fools, okay, because we don't buy the secular story. He also talks about a religionless Christianity. Now this is, for those of us in the church, really challenging uh, because the idea of a religiousness Christianity is that all of the facade in Germany, remember that Germany is technically, like most European countries, a Christian nation when Hitler comes to power. It has an established church, the German Lutheran church, it has an established church, and it has the Roman Catholic church, and everybody, if you're born in Germany, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not, you're a member of that church, okay? If you're not a member of the Catholic church, you're automatically part of the state church. Uh, that's true, by the way, even in Great Britain today, although they don't think of it that way. Uh, but technically, that is true. Uh, so he sees this facade. There are great buildings. There are big worship churches. There are giant organs. There's these great artworks that are had religious artworks in museums. Uh, but it doesn't mean anything in the way the society operates. It doesn't mean it didn't prevent Hitler. It didn't prevent people from uh, acting in ways that are damaging. And so he says what we need now is a religionless Christianity. That is a Christianity without all of the externals that we rely on uh, that is essentially a people living out the Christian faith in their own private lives. So he doesn't mean that there's not a God. I'll get to that in a minute. He doesn't mean there's not Christ. He doesn't mean there's not... The, he just means that the facades that we have created in the West when the West was all Christian don't work anymore. And we need to go back to basics. I really think that's the end of the story right there. Okay, now... Um, so what is a humanity come of age? As I said a minute ago, a humanity come of age is a society in which people do not think they need God. A society in which many people, and especially leaders, do not believe in, respect, or fear God. And a society that is failing due to pride and self-centeredness. Germany was failing. Bonhoeffer, I mean, Hitler was a disaster. Okay? It, was a, it was going to crumble and millions of people suffered because of this. And he could see that it was that pride that we can take care of ourselves, that pride that we're in charge of our destiny that was at the root of the problem, okay? I don't want to get... I've used the term enlightenment for the last 300 years. We've been in a period called modernity. Most people think that uh, the early 18th century was the beginning of what's called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment means we began to see that we could control the world through science and technology and that we could understand how to operate the world, okay? And very quickly, people, a Frenchman named Laplace is very famous by saying he didn't need the hypothesis of God to explain anything. Uh, that idea that we don't need God to explain anything or to control our lives sits at root of our entire society. It, it is, you know, we don't need God to explain to us how to make electric cars. Elon Musk doesn't need God to explain to him how to shoot rockets into space, as he did this morning. 
the fact is we often live our lives on the assumption that we don't really need God. I, I have a PhD, I have a degree in business, I have a law degree, I know how to run my business without you, God. Uh, you're just a hypothesis that I don't need. A society in which God's activity is involved... Yes, yes, thank you for it. I can't, that's what I said in the beginning. It's, I'm so sorry, it's, it's malfunctioning. I'll, I'll, I'll send to Tom these slides and he will send them to you before the week is over. Let me just read the quote to you from Letters and Papers from Prison. God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way he is with us and helps us. Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. Now, this is a little hard to understand, but it's the beginning of a whole theological movement in our society. How many of you know Philippians 2, verses 20 in the end? For though he was in the image of God and had the fullness of God, yet he agreed that he would empty himself and take on the form of a servant, even unto death on a cross. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that God's work in the world is not what, under the, in the Roman Empire and in Christendom we thought, that is God present in all of the kings of Europe, present in all of the leadership of Europe, present in the great universities. That's not God's work. God's work is his suffering love shown on the cross. That's how God works. And he works in a kind of abandonment of power. I'm going to repeat that. God works in a kind of abandonment of power as he suffers in love for us. That's what Bonhoeffer's trying to say. Now, if Jesus is the perfect human being, and if Jesus died on a cross for us, that was how he decided to defeat evil, he might have tried lightning bolts, could have tried nuclear weapons if he'd wanted to, but he in fact died on a cross, then that means that when we confront our society, that's how we have to confront our society. That's very hard I might add for me to accept. I don't know if it's hard for you to accept or not, but it's very hard for me to accept. Uh, it's not something I particularly like. I'm against crosses for me. I'm okay with it for Jesus. Uh, <laughs> uh, but when he says, take up your cross and follow me, that's not such an easy word to hear. This also points out to us something, that when God dies on a cross, when God removes himself from a situation in powerlessness to display his power, we end up in what the mystics call the dark night of the soul. And I think what Bonhoeffer would say to us in our society today is we are in a dark night of the soul. <laughs> that we have taken God out of our society in such a way that he agreed, okay, fine, you want to do it on your own without me? Let's see how that works for you. And the, for Christians, that means we feel abandoned all the time. I mean, I don't... I get up every morning, I kind of try to force myself to do my quiet time before I look at the news, but like this morning I looked at the news from Israel before I came here. And just one look at the news and you feel abandoned by God any given morning. Um, and so we feel this abandonment in our own lives and it's something we have to learn to deal with. Okay, mission in the secular world. I love this quote. 
This quote is one of my favorites from the Letters and Praises in Prison. Here's what he says. Our church, which has been fighting all these years only for self-preservation, as if, though it were an end in itself, is incapable of taking the word of reconciliation and redemption to mankind and the world. Our earlier words are therefore bound to lose their force and cease. And our being as Christians will be limited to two things, prayer and righteous action among men. Why do you think I made prayer and action the last two of the lessons? All Christian thinking, speaking, and organizing must be born anew out of this prayer and action. Now, this is, in the book, uh, I'll talk about the book at the end. In the book, I say this, but God is not in the business of propping up our institutions. He is not up there in heaven saying, how can I be sure that the building of First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio or First Presbyterian Church of Houston or Advent Presbyterian Church or Bay Pres any church I've ever served continues? That's not his business. His business is saving the world. <laughs> and these institutions we create, they aren't the business. They're just a vehicle by which the business can be done. And when we spend all of our time propping up the business instead of doing the work, it's sort of like... Uh, we all know this about them. When executives in a company begin to spend all of their time being concerned with how great the offices are and how wonderful the office space is and who gets the corner office and how, uh, how magnificent, what happens to that company? It loses its way. It loses its way and it deteriorates. And Bonhoeffer's saying, we stopped making disciples. We just relied upon culture to make them for us. We gave up sharing the love of God and therefore, God's abandoning our institutions. It's not the institution's fault, in other words. It's the fact that the institutional leadership, and I am one, uh, lost our way. Lost our way. Uh, and having lost our way, we have gone out of God's will. God will not prop up our institutions because we like them. Um, I'll say this, this is an older group, probably most of us go to the traditional service. I love contemporary, traditional worship, by the way. Uh, prefer it, actually, to contemporary worship. Uh, but I used to say in my church, I will do anything, even listen to drums at 11 o'clock if it saves young people. <laughs> you know, because God really doesn't love the organ, I don't think, more than the guitar. I'm pretty sure he doesn't love the organ more than the guitar. He might, but I don't think so. Okay, so again, to summarize, God is not, when we make disciples among the fragments of our culture, we need to remember God is not in the business of propping up our corporate model of the church. You know, the model Americans have used for the church during most of the 20th and 21st century is actually unknown in the history of the church almost. The, the mega church movement is a development of post-World War II. So if we look at all these great big huge churches around here uh, and the way they're managed, Nothing was managed that way. Or as I like, I'll put, I won't put it to first. So in the day when First Presbyterian Church of Houston was the greatest church in Houston, that's great period is really probably between 1939 and 1960, the pastor had one associate. <laughs> you couldn't find a computer in the building <laughs> to save it. They didn't even exist. Uh, the, the, the whole model of the church just didn't even exist after, until after World War II. And as megachurches began to develop, all of us began to imitate. 
and I'm a great imitator. All lawyers are great imitators, by the way. Um, so God is not interested in shifting members between denominations. Here I have to give you the sad truth about big churches, and we're one. Most of the membership gain of large churches, we are simply shifting members from smaller churches to us. 90% of the members of the biggest church in San Antonio didn't come from conversion. It came from people going from small churches to bigger churches because they like the music, the programs, the youth group, the children's ministries, all the things big churches can do. Uh, but it's not changed our culture in the slightest. We've just created what we call Christian enclaves where we can all come and escape for a few minutes, our culture. And so we need to get rid of that idea because we have to reach out not to people who are already Christians to get them to join our fellowship, but to people who aren't. <laughs> to people who aren't. That's the mission of God. Okay, and God wants to follow him in faith into the future, trusting in his wisdom and love and not on our own. Remember that pride is the essence of the beginning of a fall. And I've, I've experienced that in my legal career, in my pastoral career. When I begin to think I know enough to run the world without God, that right then and there I've taken the first step into my next failure. And if I trace back my failure, I can trace it right back to that moment. <laughs> okay, so how are we going to live a life among the fragments? How do we do that? I'm going to give you four. First of all, we live in a transforming community. I don't have time to talk about uh, the Finkenwald experiment, but Bonhoeffer, while he was in England, visited a number of monasteries run by the Anglican Church. He modeled Finkenwald after what he learned looking at those monasteries. They lived in a transforming community, and he had a reason for that, which he expresses, and the reason is these guys were going to go to the Russian front. 80% of them were going to die. The rest of them were going to be arrested and put in prison. It was not going to be easy, and they needed a community to build the character that could build churches under those circumstances. That's why he did it. And we are in the same situation in America. We need our community, the church, because we live in a hostile culture. And it is only when we have the support of one another that we will have the strength to resist. I don't know if any of you have ever failed to resist a temptation, but in my experience, getting away from church and uh, hanging around people who have already decided to embrace a temptation increases my own vulnerability to the temptation. Would you say that was true, guys? I think we'd say it's true. Okay. Um, we need to engage in faithful worship and proclamation. I don't believe that Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought there wouldn't be churches, there wouldn't be worship services, there wouldn't be the preaching of the word. This is going on in three, two places right now in our church. He didn't believe that. Uh, one reason we come to church is to be in the community of faith and to worship God together as a community of faith and not alone in our homes and the proclaiming of the gospel to the world. Uh, you can take this down. I may come back next year. A, a theologian named D Leslie Newbigin, who had been a bishop in India, wrote a book called The Gospel is Public Truth. And in that he says that the gospel is by its nature a public truth. That is to say, Jesus died on a cross in front of the entire Roman Empire for the purpose of saving the world. 
So there's no such thing as a private Christianity. It was from the beginning a public declaration to the world of the means of salvation. So we have to be willing to do that. We need to pray for a broken world. You know, it is hard to pray for your enemies, but Jesus tells us to. Uh, I found it easy in the last six weeks to pray for Israel and harder to pray for Palestine. (laughs) Uh, And uh, we're not called just to pray for the people we like or the people we support or the people who we think might one day be like us. Uh, but, But we have to pray for the world. That, I don't know about you, but I find that almost impossible. And we need to act with conviction and courage. We need to act with conviction and courage. Uh, and that means we need to go places we don't want to go. It doesn't take any courage for me to go to the YMCA. Zero. I do it every day. I love it. It takes a bit more courage when we end up going over into East San Antonio or West San Antonio. That takes a little bit more courage. All right. The legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think we might be getting close to the end. Um, His life is really an example of the transforming power of Scripture and prayer. I think I've told you, he grew up in kind of a secular family. His mother was religious, but really they they celebrated holidays. Um, When he came to the United States, he went to Harlem and saw the way the black community in America uh, faced the oppression they were under and were able to joyfully worship God and read their scripture and how much difference it made. And that is when he began to read scripture devotionally. That's when he began to see that he really had an inadequate faith. Uh, It was just a a cultural faith that he got from his society and his parents. Um, He is an example of what God can do with a man. By all accounts, on the last day of his life, April 8th, when they came to get him and they said, Pastor Bonhoeffer, and everybody knew when that happened, you were dead. Uh, He apparently had no fear. Apparently, he had great joy. Apparently, his primary interest was in taking care of the little group of people that he was with. They were also facing the same end he was facing. Uh, Somehow, he became a saint, and Scripture wasn't unimportant in that, nor was prayer. He's an example of faithfulness in a time of danger and tyranny. I I want to tell you, I've studied his life. He's not often, Eric Metaxas' biography is a good biography, but it kind of makes him a hero. He made mistakes. He made mistakes. He was a young man. He made young men's mistakes. He was overly aggressive sometimes. He annoyed people. He said things that he shouldn't have said in public meetings. He wasn't perfect. (laughs) And you don't have to be perfect either. Uh, He was just faithful in a time of danger and tyranny, and he resisted it. Remember, he's the first guy that ever got on the radio to say Hitler's a bad deal, we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, So he he was consistently faithful in resisting Hitler in every way he could. And we need to be consistently faithful in resisting evil in our society in every way we know how to do it. Um, And his teachings and example are relevant to our witness today. The reason I wanted to talk to you about the world without God and religionless Christianity is these ideas are not irrelevant to us in our society. We're going to have to learn to carry our faith into us, into the world, without it being a badge we wear, but something that people see inside of us and are interested in. Uh, And that's, that's... that's the religionless Christianity. That's not, I'm not a Christian on the facade of the service. I'm Christian all the way through. And people can't 
avoid knowing that eventually. Um, okay. So I wanted to read, salt and light in this book really have one, one verse that appears like four times, so it must be important. Um, the relevance of church community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. The believers met together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Daily, they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with gladness and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, this is what they did. We might do it differently, but here are the elements. They never stopped listening to the apostles' teaching, i.e., they read their scriptures. They heard the word of God. They never gave up meeting together in a fellowship. They never gave up breaking bread together. And that, I think, is common meals. And they never gave up praying. Certain people had unusual gifts, and they used those gifts, and people were all bound by those gifts. Uh, they were generous to a fault and gave to the poor something that was not common in Roman society. Uh, and they never gave up worshiping. Um, and so this is what we need to learn to do. And notice only one element of that is something we do on Sunday morning. Well, two elements. Okay. A final word. The book is called Crisis of Discipleship. And it ends like this. We are indeed in a time of crisis. The word crisis comes from a medieval word that describes a turning point in a disease, a decisive moment when things will either get better or worse. This is the crisis of discipleship we face. By the grace of God, we will face that crisis, and the next era of human history will emerge with a vibrant Christian community seeking the way, the truth, and the life, and serving the world in self-giving love after the example of the one who was and is the way, the truth, and the life. I, I, uh, you know, Billy Graham used to say, he's read the Bible, and he knows how the last chapter ends. Um, God will have his victory. Now, that doesn't mean we will be part of that victory. Okay? <laughs> God will have his victory, but that we can't sit back and say, okay, God, win it for me. Uh, that's not, we can't do that. God will have his victory. We need to be part of God's victory. Mm -hmm. uh, or, as I think one recent person said, the surest way to be successful in your ministry is to find out what God is doing and join him there. Often, I want God to join me in my little project. But that's not the way it works. I have to join God in His project. So that's, I think, where I leave you today.